Before we go into the podcast, I want to just talk about a business that I've set up with my friend George. Uh, it is called the Podcast Introduction Group. So if you want to join and be able to be featured on 24 to 48 pods podcasts to be able to reach an amazing audience, this is the place you need to go to. Podcast being a guest on podcasts is automatically establishing you as an authority and is able to build your personal and professional brand. We handpick of a bank of podcasters that we have to be able to grow your business and brand. We do 100% of everything that needs to be done by my team. You do not need to lift a finger. You are able to expose yourself to new and relevant markets by going on other people's podcasts. You also are able to create brand loyalty. People will love listening to you and coming back to your products or services and it's able to increase your revenue so if you want to be able to get involved you can sign up quickly registered with a with an account manager there's an onboarding call where we target the podcasts that you want to be on the type that you want whether it's entrepreneurship business health fitness whatever it is we then match you to those podcasts and you can start your journey We have regular catch-ups with our account managers and Google ranks you when people search for you. So when people are searching for you, you're able to see your podcast at the top of the list. So if you are interested in being a podcast guest on multiple podcasts, we are the place to go. If you go to podcastintroduction.com and go and register your details, we will have uh, a quick call with you. Uh, match your your podcast that you want to be on and we can then start this process asap thank you so much for your time i appreciate it back onto the podcast then this is the absolute business mindset podcast created and hosted by mark hayward this podcast will interview entrepreneurs business owners and people in their careers we will delve into their journey to success key life milestones and go deep into the area of expertise. Get ready to learn from other successes and failures. Today we have Carter Williams, who's the Managing Director and CEO of iSelect Fund. Hello, Carter. How are you? Good. How are you? Very good. Thank you so much for joining me today. So we're going to do a little bit of a journey through your career and then do a good focus on iSelect Fund to give you plenty of time to talk about that. But let's start, first of all, on your education. So you did a degree in mechanical engineering. Why did you choose that? Uh, well, when I was about four years old, I my sister got what was called a Lucy Locket, which was some kind of chain, and I used it to take apart an electrical socket and, and shocked myself, got a scar from it. But pretty much from there forward, I always took things apart and put them back together again and, right. and uh, dealt with technology from a very early age why i do not know but did and so it just was sort of a natural progression to go to engineering school yep. and uh, i originally was in physics and wanted to get back over to engineering at that time a lot of people were going into engineering is a little competitive so worked my way through and ended up in uh, getting a degree in mechanical engineering but ultimately you've been involved in all sorts of technology since then yeah we're going to talk through your the, the the driving force throughout your career is innovation. So we will cover that quite a lot uh, in, in our conversation, but I'm interested. So you, you, you tried a little bit of physics, but you, you decided engineering was more, are you a, are you a practical guy? You said you, you, you sort of took things apart and rebuilt them. Is, is, is your, is your knowledge based on practicality on, on, on understanding? Yeah. yeah so uh, I was very intrigued about the space program growing up and i i was uh walking across campus my freshman year when the challenger blew up oh okay yep which i pretty much ended any uh space-based aerospace hiring for about five years the space that put sort of a dent in the space program right i was studying physics at the time I go back and forth from being very theoretical to being practical. And so I think it just sort of the evolution of where can you get jobs, what could happen, all that sort of steered me more towards the direction of engineering. 
but I like both sides of it. Um, and I, uh, my, my brain has a little bit of ADD in terms of its focus, but I have always come at things from a, a technology uh, state of mind. Yeah. And, um, but with all of that experience in engineering and sort of theoretical, your first major role was within the Bush campaign in New York. As a yeah, I was interested in politics. You know, I would say in my career, sort of high school and career, I, at times I thought about going into medicine and became an EMT and then decided not to go into medicine at high school. I have been intrigued about politics and it was an opportunity. It was the right time, right place, a presidential campaign at the end of my uh, senior year of college. It was a time in my life where I could test it and see whether I wanted to go into, you know, when you're in college, you think you can change everything. And, and, and so it was intriguing to get involved in the process. And uh, it, I recall that, Steve Kelmar, who um, was the director of the New York office at the end of the campaign, said, uh, who had been involved in politics all his career, mm-hmm. he said, uh, you know, he was helping place people in the administration. And he, and I said, should I go into graduate and go, in, go to D.C.? And he said, no. You definitely should not. <laughs> you have too much to offer. And in a sense, he said, you have too much to offer. You should go into industry, succeed in industry. And then when you're 60, what? think about politics. But this is the politics is the last place in the world that you should waste your life. <laughs> and now at your age, so, so do you now think about politics? I think about policy. Um, I would say that it... I had a great opportunity in my education when I went to MIT to really understand what are the dynamics of innovation at that time. For anybody who's sort of a student of innovation, folks like Clay Christensen uh, were just writing their first papers about disruption and really showing academically when I was in, in grad school. And I, I, I built a better perspective in terms of that, uh, innovation is ultimately a deflationary force that <clears throat> the great changes in society for the better have normally come out of an innovator, somebody who's developing new technology and, and it scales to a large degree and it sort of shifts shifts people's perspective. And so I would say that my interest in politics at this point is really how to get politics out of the way, how to make sure that, you know, when we look at something like a, I won a national science fair in doing a solar project at age 13 Mm. and ended up walking on top of the white house, which had just installed solar panels. And uh, we really for 20, 30 years since then have made very little progress and and compared to what the vision was. And in, I, I guess that was 1980 or so. And, uh, when I look at that, I just really think of all the times that politics has gotten in the way of progress and prevented things from moving forward. And so I think my interest now in terms of politics is how to best educate people in a political environment to not make, to avoid decisions that slow the, the energy of entrepreneurs. Um, when we think of what we're doing in our venture fund, what we're right now, U.S. venture capital is a $450 billion asset. We're thinking like, what what would happen if we were spending $2 trillion mm. on innovation? And how would that change and solve problems that that politics tries to solve? So uh, I'm still learning. Yeah, but innovation is it's a never-ending beast, isn't it? There's always the next innovation, the next, the next iteration, the next building, the next thing. So um I'm glad you did because we're gonna there's some fascinating areas that you've worked in. Um but we'll start you at the start when you went into industry. You and uh, you were at McDonald Douglas as a senior engineer as, as six years. What did you learn from those early roles in engineering? Um what 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 were what were the, the key learnings that you had from from those six years? I had to build an aircraft. 
uh, aircraft are an incredibly complex thing. And, and I, uh, there, I did one, I learned the real practical, how to be an engineer. Wow. You know, if you think about a fighter aircraft, which I principally was involved in, uh, when we were designing the F-18 E and F, we were spending a hundred million dollars a month on engineering. We had 20,000 engineers working on that. So now, I mean, think about the, you know, how do you get 20,000 people to focus right? And we did that for like five years and the plane took off. You know, at the beginning, we said, we're going to design this aircraft. It's going to take four years and first flight will occur on November 26th of uh, 1995. And it occurred on the 27th. <laughs> so it you just have this massive effort to to build this thing and dealing with all these complexities of uh you know at that point we up until that point when someone built an aircraft uh we would build i think 12 destruct articles so you would build an aircraft and then put it under various stresses to break it right right at that time point people said you know we can build computer models the model of the situation more accurately yeah. and we don't need to build those 12 destruct aircraft. Right. And so it was also a point of time of a fairly major disrupt disruption in terms of bringing things like finite element models and computational fluid dynamics. And we were doing some other very, very edgy things that computationally we would have to use great computers. You'd have to get like time. We built the first version of AWS so we we built to run this code. We at night we would go home and we built software that would take take uh, processing time from all the workstations across all the engineers at night and run computational fluid dynamics code. And what year was this? This was nineteen ninety one. That is mind blowing. The number of engineers, the amount of money, the amount of complexity. Starting off at like the, the 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 early stage of AWS, that's absolutely incredible. A four year project. To- so if you do that, so what do you learn? You learn how to do that. <laughs> you learn complexity. You learn and you learn how to operate in that complexity. Right. Uh, in a way that I have found it's very difficult to sometimes deal with normal people. If you haven't been in that environment, yeah. Uh, what it does is you're used to that level of complexity. And so sometimes when you look at problems, you're like, well, we just need to do this. And people stare at you. It's like, there's no way that you can do that. And it's like, well, we did it over here. And and so the, the depth of what it takes to get things accomplished, it just puts you in a different a different mindset of, of the scope. And so I learned to trust my engineering skills. I learned to build innate skills. I learned to understand complexity. Um, I learned to work across multiple teams. Uh, and then the other thing that I was involved in early on was the early introduction of Lean and Six Sigma. So Lean Manufacturing Six Sigma that many people talk about today, yeah. it was invented then. It was, I learned Six Sigma from what Bill Smith. Sigma? Sorry, I don't understand Lean. What's Six Sigma? Six Sigma was the original quality practice that shifted everybody's attitude. So... It was a, a statistical control process that became very critical to manufacturing. Right. All manufacturing follows it now. Sometimes you hear about people being called green belts or black belts and Six Sigma, but it's a it's an understanding of quality control that was really partially derived from the Toyota production system. But it was really advocated by a guy named Bill Smith from Motorola and and dramatically change everybody's perception of quality. So up until that point, people were like, yeah, 5% of whatever we make is to have some quality problems. Customer will deal with it. We'll, and so Six Sigma said, nope, zero quality issues. Everything's going to be produced, zero quality issues. People said it's impossible. You can't do that. And so what that led to was how do we change our designs upstream so that they never have these defects? And it was a very dramatic thing. Ultimately, it affected a lot of industries. But I learned it from Bill Smith himself. Okay. I mean, so it may not, you may not, that's sort of like, it's like sitting down with Albert Einstein and learning, right. 
physics. I mean, it, so it was really just a fascinating period of time to do some new things. And, and we were able to flow that into how we designed aircraft and modify really how all aircraft are built. Fascinating. Fascinating. So you then moved on to Boeing Ventures, where from what I understand from the research I did, you were you were involved in incubators to do with innovation. Yeah. So my my career, I was at McDonnell Douglas. I went to MIT to get my graduate degree. Right. McDonnell Douglas uh, was bought by Boeing. Right. I was going to go leave and do consulting. My old boss from McDonnell Douglas called up and said, what are you doing? And, you know, we want you to come back. I came back and I did two things. I One, I moved into the role of managing R&D investment. So I worked for the chief technology officer of then Boeing, a guy named Dave Swain. And that was Boeing needs to spend $2.5 a year on new technology and it's Phantom Works and elsewhere. Where should we invest it? Where should we spend it? Right. Should we do hypersonics? Should we do new jet aircraft? Should we, all that kind of stuff. And I uh, so did that for several years. And then we started the Ventures Group. And, and this is sort of the nine, this was sort of 2000 timeframe. And we did it for a couple of reasons. We wanted to create new business units. And uh, we also had employees. Not It was a period not unlike today where a lot of people wanted to do startups. And so as a company, we had people wanting to leave. And so our idea was let's, Let's understand where all that talent is and manage that talent and figure out where that talent is. And that was really the beginnings of uh, unmanned vehicles and autonomy and, and uh, a lot of new sensor systems and, and things. And so I, we did that for three or four years. That's fascinating. Um, let's move on to, cause your, your area that you seem to, keep on coming back to after this role you were director for energy smart grid and renewables in 2006 now we said we just mentioned this before uh, the actual interview started this is incredibly early in the realms of smart technology energy and renewables what was the fascination and what was the what was the why why make that change from from engineering and planes into renewables well, it's a complex systems problem. So really, designing aircraft is a complex systems problem. What was going on in energy was a complex systems problem. And, and one of the things we had learned in aircraft to really sort of battlefield management was how do we leverage information to more effectively make decisions? And so as we looked at the energy space, I, I left Boeing when the CTO retired and was looking around for new things. And at that point in time, we saw an opportunity to leverage data out of buildings uh, to more effectively uh, make decisions in operating buildings and operating energy systems. And so this was early days. The Internet of Things was not, nobody knew what the Internet of Things was at that point. It was just being defined. And uh, we, I had had some experience on the military side of doing that for battlefield management and really saw an opportunity to, to better inform operators uh, on their opportunities to reduce energy. So, we, for example, if you take a lead platinum building, somebody comes in and spends all this money on a, a new lead platinum building, the building control system in and of itself was often programmed wrong. And uh, almost like if you release new code for software. If you don't do good quality control, it has bugs in it. In a sense, people were moving to make these big innovations, but they weren't using good systems engineering to execute them. So we were, we were implementing new renewable strategies that actually were in the end using more energy, but, but acting in a King has no clothes kind of way from a standpoint of, well, it's a lead platinum certified building. It must be good. So I've always been fascinated with, you know, what is the real performance and where are the opportunities with it and building systems that, that make it easier for people to make better decisions. And so that time period is sort of 04 through sort of 2010. I was very involved in those activities and it wasn't far off. I don't know why, you know, go back to, I, I won a national science fair at age 13 around building a solar house I don't know. It's just always sort of, you know, figuring out how to use energy more efficiently and make it a business um, just seems sort of interesting. 
So green technology in 2006 versus where we are now with climate control and the, 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 the focus, the greater focus. And this is literally in the last two years that green tech and renewables now in, in the US and the UK is now an accepted. We, we need to do something about this for, for climate control reasons. In 2006, you had a lot of people or the vast majority of people that were sort of denying climate control and climate change. How, how were you at the cutting edge of green technology then? And, and where, where what you were doing then has now impact, greater impact now perhaps in our current day in 2021? I, hmm, um, I think that the, I'm a middle child. Okay. Middle, I don't know if you know about middle trials. We like to solve debates instead of cause them. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm an engineer. So engineers, the role of an engineer is to take a problem and try to solve it. Yeah. And uh, I would say that the, when I look at the climate issue, I don't know. I don't, I spend time around people that understand climate change. I, I don't know if, I, I can write every scenario in every which way, but if we reduce the amount of CO2 output, it's probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. And so then the question is, uh, how do we do that in the most efficient way? Well, that's an engineering problem. Yeah. And then uh, I've spent a lot of time around innovation and what does an innovator do? An innovator makes an innovation is ultimately a deflationary force. If we look at all innovations, what they ultimately do, the most successful ones, is they come out with a new product that is better and cheaper. Okay, so we have a debate. Easy way to debate it is bring a new innovation in market. Innovation is a deflationary force, and engineering helps helps engineer better products. So I I think that the my observation when I was 13 thinking about energy and 06 and energy and thinking today was always the same problem. You have some group of people sitting on the sidelines yelling and screaming and saying, you don't understand. You have another group of people saying, I can't afford it. And what you're always missing is someone in between that says, I can build a better, cheaper solution that you, you can, that people will buy. I mean, if we come up with, something that saves energy and is cheaper. Yep. Who's going to complain about that? <laughs> and so I don't know how to characterize the different periods. I don't see today, frankly, as any different than 06 or 1980 in terms of the general displacement of you know different people in different camps. I think that perhaps the difference is you get people like an Elon Musk who is, you know, cult of personality, successful, you know, benefiter of uh, subsidies, I don't know what, but he's driving force forward to make a change. And I think today we just have a better image of what can be accomplished. And, uh, and so it's, you know, might be the right time, right place now in terms of the general disposition that, Yeah, it is possible to do this at a lower cost. What does disruption mean for you? Disruption to me, the the core disruption that I I pay attention to is when um, it's a very technical answer. Um, okay, when the the performance metrics that the customers care about change. Okay. So we used to care about processor speed and computers. And then we cared about energy saving, uh, energy efficiency. So if you go through the 80s, people wanted faster, 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 faster computers. As we got into the 90s and the 2000s, people wanted to operate on their laptop for a longer period of time. Yeah, The speed had gotten up to a point that nobody needed a faster speed for word processing. Mm. Not so much, but they needed to operate two hours, three hours, six hours, 10 hours on a battery. So that's a very Clay Christensen type definition. But the important thing is, is when those metrics change, what Clay Christensen taught us was the incumbent normally loses market share and the new start wins market share. If you take Tesla, 
Tesla is more likely to be able to organize itself around the delivery of electric vehicles better than Ford will. Ford is trying to build another electric car. Tesla is making more autonomous transportation. Mm. On Tesla's world, you don't need to own a car. In Ford's world, you need to own a car. Yeah. And so the disruption that we're trying to see there is, is are we about to make a disruption where, you know, this is coming up in the U.S. in terms of the Secretary of Transportation is saying, we need to provide electric cars to a wider array of people to give equity and a whole bunch of other things like that. Well, maybe the right answer is, is that somebody doesn't need to own a car to get transportation, mm-hmm. that, that we lower the price so low in terms of autonomy and utility that why... Why would I ever need to buy a car? I just, if I need to go from A to B, I just push a button that shows up and it goes there and it costs me $1.50. So that's disruption. It's when that market, the business model changes and and the technology changes to address that business model. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that clarification. Um, So you spent nine years on your own business in open innovation ventures um, and, and that was an advisory service for green tech. So you started out on your own. What 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 drove you to to want to own your own business? Well, so I successfully sold when I left Boeing. I was in a position where I didn't need a lot of resources, and so I was intrigued on many things. And so I established that as an entity to invest. We grew a company named GridLogix, which I was president of. That ended successfully. And so then I moved into a period where I I was wanted to work on interesting projects and do really personal investing. And so that really sort of was OI Ventures. And it was in and around. I was well known at that point in the area of energy and so worked on many startups at that time frame. Uh, really just sort of while also sailing a lot. So I had I, spent a lot of time working up to 08 and I, a lot of long weekends and, you know, throughout my entire career and I had not been sailing in a long time. And so I went back to sailing and I, OI Ventures just gave me a little bit of flexibility to do that kind of work. Um, and what did you learn being the business owner rather than part of a team, an engineering team? We'll be back after a quick break. If you want tips and strategies on how to start, grow, and monetize your business online, check out the Digital Revolution podcast with Eli Adams. We interview digital experts from around the world that share their personal stories. They talk about what they're currently working on and where they see the future going. But most importantly, they share tactics in their specific area of expertise with the hope of helping you improve your digital presence online. You can listen to the Digital Revolution podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, or simply click on the link in the show notes below. I I don't know if I really learned anything different. I did learn that, well, for example, it, it, it gave me more free time to pay attention to other things in my life there for a while um, and catch up on on uh, on life, I, I would say that in my career, I've gone through phases of intense focus. And then I uh, non-intense focus. I don't know if you call that laziness. But, <laughs> but, uh, people are lazy. Some of the best people in technology because you, you work out how to do it quicker and smarter. And so laziness can be a really positive impact on business. Yeah, I think that you know, I'm not the type of person that could go to school part-time. I got to be fully immersed or not. And so um, I, I go through phases of nonstop 24 by 7, 365 days a week. You know, I'm you know, doing transactions on Christmas Day. Right. And then other periods of not doing that. And I think that that's... I think in terms of if I look at where I've gained personal wealth and moved ahead, it's been, it's been episodically. So let's move on to iSelect Fund. 
So why don't you tell me a little bit what it is, what do you do, what's the fund, how do you structure your fund, who are you, who who are coming through your fund and, and what industries yeah. you're interested so in. So we, we uh, really are doing two things with iSelect. Uh, we, one is very conviction-oriented conviction around the, the topic of food is health. And thing two is how do we alter the way capital comes into the market? So on thing one, uh, in the U.S., we spend $1.7 trillion on food. We spend $1.9 trillion on the healthcare costs related to poor nutrition. That's a $3.6 trillion market. And so we're looking at the technologies that pretty much will give food providers the opportunity to take share away from healthcare. So diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and uh, central nervous system disorders like Alzheimer's mm. are really a byproduct of our nutrition. Mm. And so we are investing in early stage companies and mid-stage companies that really focus in one part on how to improve the ingredients that we're eating. Right. And that principally is about bringing more protein into our diets Okay. So plant-based meats is an example of that. And when we think about that market, on a global basis, the population is is increasing from about 7.8 billion to 9.8 billion by 2050. The other thing that's happened is about 3 billion people are moving into the middle class. When they move into the middle class, mostly Asia, they want to eat better. And so they're either going to go eat a lot of chickens, pigs, and steak and all that kind of thing, but we don't have enough farmland to produce that. So plant-based proteins will be part of that. So we're, you know, on the ag side, we're focused on that and how to improve agriculture, improve yield and nutrition and taste and come out with new products that are easier for people to eat and better. And then on the healthcare side, we're focused on what we refer to as functional medicine is, is how do you change the healthcare system so that a patient can, can, can monitor themselves and look at their Fitbit or their whoop band and, Continuous blood, glucose, blood, continuous blood glucose monitoring, and how can I get the data to help me be a better patient and improve it? So that's what we're. That's thing one. Food. Right. We call that food is health. Yeah. Thing two is I uh, is that we have about four hundred and fifty billion in venture capital in the U.S. We have about sixty trillion of high net worth people who are wealthy. Yeah. They're not invested in venture capital. Uh, and when you really look at that number, and then my experience is that if you want to solve a tough problem, an entrepreneur an entrepreneur is a better person to solve a tough problem than a politician. Sorry. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. We default to politicians when nothing else works. But, <laughs> but the practical reality is an entrepreneur, well-positioned, can normally really change things for the better. And so our, our belief, our observation is, is what – why is it that that capital is not coming into venture capital? Why is it not a $2 trillion asset class instead of a $450 billion asset class in the United States? And that is an issue of access. It's hard for people to find venture funds, invest in venture funds. It's hard for them to trust venture funds. They, they just And so we are working on expanding that. And so our investors, we created a fund that's a little bit different. It's referred to as an open-ended fund. Uh, it allows a wider array of investors to invest. And we, our smallest investor is worth about $5 million. And, you know, it, the law in the United States is that you have to have a certain amount of net worth to even participate in venture capital. It's called an accredited investor. So our smallest investor is probably worth about $5 million. Mm. Our biggest investor is worth $40 billion. Right. So we a wide array of people. We have about 500 investors right now. We'll probably have 1,000 next year. Uh, we just took our first company public, Benson Hill. Right. Uh, Benson Hill is focused on uh, protein. It came out at $1.6 billion. So it's a unicorn. So we had our first public company and it's a unicorn. Uh, we invested in that company in uh, 2014 when it had five employees. I think it's got more than a thousand right now and, and is really a leader in that industry. So we've been through that whole progression. And, and what we're trying to do at this point is attract more investors globally. We have global investors. We, South Korea, you know, Middle East, Europe, U.S. Um, so we, a wide array of investors. And we're trying to make it easier for them to get access to that. 
The other thing we're trying to do is create a network effect. So we have investors who themselves are successful. And so they have a viewpoint on certain aspects of these businesses. And we're really trying to build a collective of a network of people focused in this area because they think it's a good return. It's always about a good return. And secondly, that because of their Rolodex or their connections or their interests or their insight or their business skill, that that as investors, they can sort of help these companies identify new opportunities. And, and so we're building a broader network. And our network has 55 startups. It has early adopter customers that include 4 million acres of farm, farmland. So when we invest in a company, we already know people who control 4 million acres of farmland. We have about 300 talented advisors. These are people who invented GMO corn. They um, used to run DARPA, the Defense Research Agency in the United States. They, uh, I mean, these are people that have accomplished. They've been CEOs of major companies. And then we have uh, this investor base of about 500 people. So we have this giant network effect yeah. um, that is swirling around and, and we're trying to help build a better perspective around it. How do you qualify your companies, your startups? We go through a very detailed diligence process. In that, in that standpoint, we look a lot like a venture fund. We, we normally spend about, uh, we look at about 2,000 companies a year. Wow, 2,000? Yeah, we invest in 20. Right. So, um, do they go through an incubator stage where or do, they, or do you just do your due diligence on them and we, then select? We do our due diligence with it. We work a lot with people who are better from an incubator standpoint. We're really set up as a, a one, we're a fund. And so we're pretty, pretty focused on that. The slight difference is we concentrate more on uh, building a network of early adopters. What does every startup need? They need a customer. Yeah. So as a fund, if you look at venture funds, we look a lot like a venture fund and how we do diligence. Mm-hmm. We're slightly different in that we have a higher concentration of focus on who's the early adopter customer. Do we know who they are? When we invest in the company, can we help them get closer to those early adopter customers those early adopter customers are the people that say, cool product, you really should have more of A, B, and C, less of PDQ in the product. And uh, and so that's one, that's a little bit of our shift. But we co-invest along with other venture firms and and pretty much on that side look like a venture firm. But diligence for us is at least a 60-day to 90-day process. Right. And who's on your committee on the VC fund? What, don't need to mention names. You can if you want to. But what, what sort of component do you have on your committee of the VC? It, so we it, it includes people who understand technology and how it evolves. That's more me. We have um, associates on our team who follow rigorous standards of, of data and diligence. So we have long checklists of is this true? Is that true? So there's that. And then we have a, a set of people that we call our selection committee, which is really, uh, we also call them the perennials. It's, a, it's sort of a term. These are people that are sort of 55 to 80 years old. They've been around industry and they they may be a PhD or a doctor or a engineer or a CEO. And they, we typically, when we get down to the final bits of evaluating a company, we'll bring in four of them who happen to have domain experience in that area and really sort of say, look, we've been through diligence. We've compared these to other people. We've looked at the venture. We've, we, you know, we've done all the things that are textbook. Mm-hmm. We need your help and understanding based on your qualitative experience. What do you think about management? What do you think about the market? What do you think about their strategy? And we really use that, you know, at that point we sort of have a sense that we want to make the investment we really use that advice to sort of lay out the prescription of the opportunity because to some degree, it's nice to say, Oh, I'm investing in this startup. That's perfect. It's coming to me. I've looked at it. I found the perfect startup. Yeah. That's never, that, that just doesn't exist. They're not that, are they? No. You really want to, it's sort of like buying antiques. I'm going to buy this antique. I'm going to fix a couple chips here. Or I'm going to, buy this house thing and put in stainless steel appliances there there's a little bit of there's a little bit of 
you know, based on our understanding of the market, if if we tweak things in these ways, we're going to increase the value. Uh, and so as a venture capitalist, when we're acting in the venture capital realm, we're, we're doing that. In terms of food and health and our principal focus, we, we have a conviction around the fact that if we fix metabolic health, people's lives would be better, society will spend less money, a whole bunch of good things. So yeah. that's... Uh, there's a financial incentive in us doing that. There's also uh, just sort of a broader good incentive. And as we think about that, we we're thinking about, hey, we've got these 55 companies. Do they do they overlap? Does company A sort of help company B a little bit? And we're not trying to like make them coordinate with each other. We just want them to be friends so that they that we can start to define um we see things in the marketplace about 10 years before everybody else. And we're trying to help the market. There's a great article written by Kurzweil, who's a CSO at Google called law of accelerating returns. It's on his blog site. And he talks about when new technology like Amazon, you know, people thought Amazon was an online bookstore for Mm. seven years. Mm. Bezos didn't think that. So there, there's a period where people don't get it. Mm. And uh, you can see it if you look at their stock price when they go public, it's flat and then boom, it goes up. Yeah. We're trying to help the market understand during that lowland period yeah. what's, what's really going on and trying to help them see that opportunity to accelerate it and make it occur in the market faster. Why do you think there's an $8 billion shortfall in startup investment outside of Silicon Valley. We'll be back after a quick break. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Because, uh, so we, one, it's this gap. So that's not quite a shortfall. There's a supply from a standpoint, there's a supply and that supplies sort of like, if we go back to the 50s and 60s in the United States and we look at economic growth, we had regular 4% GDP growth in the United States. And if you look at the metrics, that growth occurred in every single state in the United States. It was everywhere. People came back from the war, they started in businesses, banks funded them, they grew things. So the U.S. went through a period of almost persistent 4% GDP growth. So then if we say, okay, now that innovation has been concentrated in Silicon Valley, maybe New York, maybe Boston. And we look at the data there and say, there's this much of opportunity being invested in in those areas and it's concentrated. Now, if we took those same ratios and apply them throughout the entire country and said that same level, even just a portion of that level of innovation was occurring, and it was occurring in every single state, what level of of money would we be investing? And that's where we start getting to to numbers like eight, $10 billion new investment in venture capital each year. And then we flip to the other side, which we call latent demand. So... um, when you see a new product, a cell phone come out, iPhone, nobody knew the iPhone, there was a need for it. But as soon as it was made available, there was an increase of interest in it. Yeah. So we refer to that as late in demand. How many people want better food? Nobody really knows. But as soon as you start offering it, people buy it. We've seen those, those pumps. So a combination of that, our sense of the markets where there's late in demand, um, food and agriculture, um, healthcare are underserved. And when we look at inflation curves, the mm. best way to see this is if we look at in curves of inflation, there's work by uh, Mark uh, 
can't remember Mark's last name, out of AEI that basically says, um, here are the deflationary forces. So automobiles, um, home electronics, all their prices have come down. Yeah. Education, food, healthcare, all their prices have gone up. Yeah. Now, the academic in me says, if the prices are going up, we don't have enough innovation. Right. If we had enough, and people are like, oh, well, but we're spending so much on healthcare. Not enough to drive innovation. The, 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 those numbers should be coming down. Yeah. Because innovation is a deflationary force. So when we look at that and we look at sort of the innovative talent in the United States, which is true elsewhere, but the United States, the one thing the United States has going for it is its ability to innovate. Mm-hmm. It, it just is awesome in its ability to do this. And if we sort of say, let's take the same kind of practices we have in Silicon Valley, spread them out throughout the United States. Let's go attack healthcare. Let's go attack food. Let's go attack education. And let's see the same types of gains that we've seen in IT and automobile and other areas and apply them. Um, that's where we start saying that it could be easy to spend, invest $8 billion more per year in early stage startups. Awesome. Where do you see your fund in the next two to five years? Uh, we will two to five years. So people, we're going to turn heads. We're the, we're the Ford of innovation as it applies to like the Model T. So before Ford invented the Model T, there were, I think, a thousand car companies. Once the Model T came along, which was really the moving line assembly, he dramatically changed the economics and accelerated demand, got the price point right, and really grew a lot of change. So our objective in five years is to be, you know, a fund on the size of $10 billion, and that for people looking at us and basically saying that fund right there is underwriting the innovation that changed the shape of the curve in healthcare and agriculture, that they you can you can see the changes in the environment and ESG metrics because of the technologies that spun out of there. Mm-hmm. And that that people see that in a hopeful way that basically says the application of capital on smart entrepreneurs solves the problems. And that that really that that people stop turning to politicians to solve these problems and they basically say, you know, this is the age of innovation. And, and specifically in the areas of biology, we are where IT and computer chips were the thing in the 80s and the 90s to really change things. I think we're now in a mode where our, our ability to understand biology is accelerating and our ability to apply that to the public good is accelerating. And it's going to be, you know, there could be a lot of entrepreneurs with dents in their forehead between now and then. But I think in five years, we'll be in a point where people say, yeah, I get it. You know, Amazon's not a book, yeah. online bookstore. It's actually got something different. And then people are happy with the result. I mean, people can say Jeff Bezos is, you know, dominating the world, but there's a lot of good coming out of, you know, it, it's good to concentrate on what's good that comes out of these things. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, Carter, we're coming to the end of the interview. I ask the same six questions to all of my guests. They're quick fire questions. They don't need a quick fire answer. Uh, the first question is, what was the best decision that you made? Uh, going to MIT. For your MBA? Yeah. Maybe marrying my wife. <laughs> Is she watching? <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, that's fine. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you've been given? Listen. Listen more. Yeah. We have two ears, one mouth. Mm. evolution has sort of set the pattern on how to learn yeah absolutely um who's helped you most in your career uh my father why he set a standard of integrity that uh, he passed away in 97 but he set a standard of sort of integrity that sort of keeps me in check does it keep you grounded yeah, it, it just helps make decisions. So he's still helping me make decisions That's on a regular basis. That's awesome. Do you have any regrets? 
I not starting sooner. <laughs> That's my regret as well. Not starting entrepreneurship earlier. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for, for your honesty. Um, what are you most proud of? I, uh, the people around me, the ability to attract people around me that, that want to, you know, to build an environment that people want to be around. Awesome. And what does legacy mean to you? I, uh, that thousands of people take credit for the things that I was able to do. Thank you. And the last thing is where can people find you if they want to reach out to you? I see Williams at iselectfund.com or Jay Carter. Well, single letter, Jay Carter. Well on Twitter. Excellent. Thank you so much, Carter. It's been an absolute pleasure. One of the things that I, I, I found fascinating is even when you started with your VC and your, your fund, you're still using the engineering, the, the basis of engineering in business, not just in the technology side, but equally using your engineering knowledge and skills in business. And lots of engineers never make that transition to entrepreneurship into business. But the ones that do often do incredibly well because they have a great training and logical thought process. Well, I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, spending an hour with you today, Carter, I, 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 th I think I'm right. So um, just thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for, for, for sharing your story with me. And um, I'll speak to you soon. Great. Thanks a lot. 